Welcome to episode 122 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Anthony, Eric, and Karen. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Anthony, Eric, and Karen, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Today, I'm going to talk about imperfection. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of imperfection. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. I hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be the discussion of the topic imperfection. Following a short break, I'll talk about my life in recovery, how I practice these principles in all my affairs. We'll follow that with your email or voice contributions and some brief news about the podcast before closing. I was inspired to this topic by the book, The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown, subtitled, Let Go of Who You Think You're Supposed to Be and Embrace Who You Are. I'm going to start with a reading. Wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. It's going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I am also brave and worthy of love and belonging. Wholehearted living is not a one-time choice. It is a process. In fact, I believe it's the journey of a lifetime. My goal is to bring awareness and clarity to the constellation of choices that lead to wholeheartedness and to share what I've learned from many, many people who have dedicated themselves to living and loving with their whole hearts. Before embarking on any journey, including this one, it's important to talk about what we need to bring along. What does it take to live and love from a place of worthiness? How do we embrace imperfection? How do we cultivate what we need and let go of the things that are holding us back? The answers to all of these questions are courage, compassion, and connection, the tools we need to work our way through our journey. I read this book, and so much of it spoke to me of the journey that I've been on in recovery, the journey of self-discovery, the journey of finding myself worthy in myself, the journey of letting go of the feeling of being judged by other people, the journey to let go of what I believe other people expect of me, to let go of the feeling that other people are judging me for not meeting those unspoken and implied expectations. That's a lot. The book is titled The Gifts of Imperfection, and and what are these gifts of imperfection? She says that they, they are courage, compassion, and connection. She quotes Mary Daly, a theologian who writes, Courage is like, it's a habit, a virtue. You get it by courageous acts. It's like you learn to swim by swimming. You learn courage by couraging. Brittany Brown continues, The same is true for compassion and connection. We invite compassion into our lives when we act compassionately towards ourselves and others. And we feel connected in our lives when we reach out and connect 
and I'm, I don't know about courage, although I, I guess thinking about the practice of courage and courage, I've seen this defined actually, I think somewhere in one of the daily readers, courage is fear that is said its prayers. Courage is not being without fear, but acting in fear, in spite of fear, despite fear. Uh, and the courage to walk into an Al-Anon meeting to expose my vulnerability and my shame to a room full of people is something that I definitely had to practice explicitly uh, at the beginning. And it still is sometimes speaking up, saying something in a meeting. It's a lot easier than it used to be, and that's because of practice. I was at a meeting last night, and uh, the person who, who shared last started out by saying, we were talking about perfectionism, and she said, I think my perfectionism keeps me from from talking in meetings because I want to say whatever it is I have to say perfectly. You know, but she did she did speak, she did share, and that's courage and that's that's what we practice. And that's one of the things that helps to helps us to be comfortable in our imperfection because you know what? We're always imperfect. We're never going to be perfect. Again in the same meeting last night a friend of mine said was talking about when he was getting married, the priest who was marrying them in one of their, their pre-wedding consultations said, expect things to go wrong. Expect to have fun. And afterwards, I was talking to him and his wife, and, and they related a couple of the things that went wrong during their wedding and how they were able to laugh about them and how they were able to have that fun. And And that is... You know, that's a gift of accepting and living in, not more than, more than accepting, living in imperfection, knowing that life is not perfect, knowing that we make mistakes, but knowing that it's okay and we're okay. Another definition of courage that Brown gives is to speak one's mind by telling all one's heart. And again, wow, I mean, that is something that happens happens in our meetings, because what are we doing in a meeting other than speaking our heart? Compassion. And I remember, I think it was in my step study group, uh, we came to, uh, I think it must have been in the in the uh, inventory, We one of the topics was compassion. And, you know, I looked it up in the dictionary, and the dictionary definition of compassion, or, or not really the dictionary definition, but the, the root of compassion is to suffer with. And this is opposite of our normal instinct to protect ourselves, to blame and judge. Um, and again, Brown writes, the heart of compassion is really acceptance. The better we are at accepting ourselves and others, the more compassionate we become. And that's one of the things that the 12 steps did for me, in, in particular, doing, doing that inventory, which I have to say, when I, when I started in Al-Anon, doing that inventory was, looked like an insurmountable step. It was mm, harder, I think, than this notion of a higher power that I was going to turn my will and my life over to the care of, which I, I surely didn't want to do. But, but the inventory looking at myself just scared the heck out of me. But what I found was when I did it, and when I did it in the company of loving friends who had become friends through the process of studying the steps together, when I did it in the company of loving friends, and when I 
in step five, admitted my faults to other people, to myself and to God, not necessarily in that order. It was very powerful and freeing. And it gave, it gave me compassion for myself. And part of how that worked for me in that process was seeing that I wasn't alone in my, in my imperfection, that other people were just as imperfect as me because I had been comparing my inside to their outside. And their outside looked a lot more perfect than my inside. And I bet if you pause for a moment and look inside yourself and look at the people around you and say, I am so much more flawed, I am so much more imperfect than they seem to be. And and that word seem to be is what's really important here because we don't know what's inside them. And opening up opening up in our meetings, opening up in our individual meetings with people in the program, in our conversations, and really sharing with each other what's inside helps us to see that we are not alone, helps us to see that that we are no less perfect than these others that we've been looking at and, and saying, oh, I wish I was like him or her. And connection. She says, until we receive with an open heart, we are never really giving with an open heart. And I have to think about that one a little bit, unpack that, receive with an open heart. When I listen to somebody else, am I filtering their words? Am I judging what they say? Am I dismissing their experience? Because when I do that, I am not receiving with an open heart. I have had the experience of having conversations with friends in the program where when I was talking, their entire focus was on me, or so it felt. And that's a really an amazing experience. If you've, if you've ever had that experience, you know what I mean. And if you haven't, stick around because you will. And being on the sort of telling end of that experience of being received with an open heart, being received with unconditional love, really, being received with no judgment, with no feedback other than keep talking, please keep talking, uh, is, is an amazing, and it, and it helped me to understand that I could do that. And, and I asked a friend one day when I was talking with them, and, I, and they were being this listener. It's, you know, not just a sponge, but, but an active listener. And I said, how do you do this? And my friend said, I just remind myself, it's your turn to speak. And that's such a simple thing, but it's such a, a powerful tool. And it's something that I can practice. I can, when I'm with somebody who is sharing and, and I want to speak up and I want to say, oh yeah, wow. You know, I had this experience too, which is a normal conversational thing. Uh, and it's sort of in its worst form, it's, it's one upping like, oh, well, you think that was bad. Listen to this. But when I have that, that urge, if I can say to myself, no, it's their turn to speak. I'm listening. And and having that practice in meetings, where meetings have no crosstalk, most of the meetings I go to have no crosstalk. So when somebody else is speaking, I just listen. 
I have to just listen. And I can I can actively listen. I can hear what they're saying. I can connect with what they're saying. I can have compassion for what they're saying. Or I can be off in my thoughts somewhere, and, and that's another practice. And meditation, for example, helps with that, helps with being in the moment, helps with hearing what is being said and not then going off on my own flights of fancy, my own internal tangents, my own thoughts about what I'm going to do when I get to work or what's happening tomorrow or what happened today, because my brain can so go there all the time. I can say no. I can say, wait, this person is speaking. Let me hear what this person is speaking, because my higher power is talking to me. God is talking to me through the person who is speaking, and and I need to hear whatever it is they and God have to say. Connection. Connection happened in Al-Anon. I know that there have been times in my life before when I have felt very connected to, to another person, but I had never learned how to be connected really until, until I came into this program, until I saw it happening and I got to practice it and practice it and practice it. And I got to practice it in a setting where it didn't take as much courage to be open and share and be open and receive Brown says it it makes sense to me that the gifts of imperfection are courage, compassion, and connection. Because when I think back to my life before this work, I remember often feeling fearful, judgmental, and alone, the opposite of the gifts. And what we seek, I think, in living in our imperfection, in being our imperfect selves, and acceptance and loving of our imperfect selves is this sense of being enough, I am enough, and loving ourselves. And and I found this quote, also in the book, uh, by Bell Hooks, to begin by always thinking of love as an action rather than a feeling is one way in which anyone using the word in this manner automatically assumes accountability and responsibility. And the thing that jumps out at me from that quote, is love as an action, thinking of love as an action, rather than a feeling. Love is something that I do, and is something that then I must continue to do. I can't just feel it, but I have to do it. And, and how do I love myself actively? How do I love myself actively? Well, these are things that we learn in the program, we learn about taking care of ourselves. We learn about being compassionate for ourselves. We learn about identifying with others, not comparing with others, so that we can see our similarities. We can see that we are no different from the others around us, and in particular, we are no less than the others around us. And And these are acts of love for ourselves. And we come to this question, can we love others more than we love ourselves? No, no. Think about that. Let me know what you think. Can you love somebody else more than you love yourself? Think of love as an action. So what are the facets that Brown identifies in people who live, as she calls it, wholeheartedly, people who live with their imperfection, who love their imperfection, who maybe want to to grow accepting and loving our imperfection doesn't mean we can't grow. It doesn't mean that we want to stay exactly the same. 
And, you know, I think of here of step six and seven of owning, owning our shortcomings in step six and becoming willing to have change occur and then asking our higher power to help us with that change in, in time, in, in the time that, that it needs to happen. And accepting ourselves humbly asked him, you know, humility means in this context, humility is that I know this is who I am and I would like help in becoming a better me. So Brown identifies 10 areas, 10, what does she call them? 10 guideposts to living a wholehearted life. And each of these is identified by a positive word or phrase. But more importantly for me is also identified as what it means letting go of in order to have this quality in my life. And, you know, the first thing, the first thing that I identified with, the first slogan that I identified with as I came into al was let go. And at that time, it meant I needed to let go of the futile attempts that I had been making to control my loved one's drinking. But as I continued to work the program, and in particular in steps six and seven, I need to let go of the hold that I have on some of the things that I feel imperfect about and the ways in which those control my life. And again, I want to reflect back to the meeting last night where we were talking about perfection. And I recognized as I was listening and then as I spoke that I feel the need sometimes to be perfect in in sort of an absolute sense that, so my work is a computer programmer. And if you don't tell a computer perfectly exactly what to do, it's not going to do it right. It's not going to do it what the way you want it to. And, and there's a whole journey there about analysis paralysis, about finding a way to move forward in imperfection in, in creating a computer program. But that's not where we're going today. Um, I, I do, I do want to note that the analysis paralysis is something that came up in the discussion last night. And my very first job as a computer programmer, I spent an entire summer analyzing what it was that we were supposed to be making the computer do. And then at the end of the summer and two weeks before I went back to college and was like, Oh my God, now we have to write, write this, right, 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 right. That didn't work very well. That really didn't work very well. Spending the whole time figuring out how to do it perfectly before doing any of it was not the right, was not the right approach as it turned out. Okay. So what do I need to let go of in order to gain these qualities in my life? And the first one she identifies as authenticity. And the subheading on that one is letting go of what people think. And, and this is where my perfectionism comes in. And I said this before that I feel that I have to meet people's unspoken and assumed that I assume they have expectations of me. And the one, one of the manifestations of that was that I would walk 
whatever I was doing, I would feel that everybody around me was watching and that I had to do it perfectly or they would be judging me as being less than. And I only have to look at my own experience to know that I'm not watching everybody else to see how well they're walking down the sidewalk or whatever it is that, that I was doing at the moment. Uh, are they turning on their turn signal a full two seconds before they reach the intersection, et cetera? And I'm not doing that, so why do I think everybody else is doing that about me? Because obviously I'm the most important and most imperfect person in the world, right? Yeah. So letting go of what other people think and embracing who we are, this is how we bring this guidepost of authenticity into our lives. And I think she illustrates this with a quote from Margaret Young. Often people attempt to live their lives backwards. They try to have more things or more money in order to do more of what they want to so that they will be happier. The way it actually works is the reverse. You must first be who you really are, then do what you really need to do in order to have what you want. I can't say I live that. Uh, but I think I live that better now than I used to. Uh, and and I think I'll re- probably reflect on that more as I move forward through these other guideposts. The next one is self-compassion or letting go of perfectionism. And, and you know that really, there we go. There's that topic, perfectionism. Where perfectionism in this context is me feeling that because I'm not perfect, I'm worthless and not having compassion for the lovable, imperfect person that I am, the lovable, imperfect person who is enough. When I can find compassion for my own failures, then I can come around to loving myself, to understanding that what I have is enough, and that I don't need external things, and I don't need external validation to be okay. And maybe this is just a a factor of getting older, but the last several years when we come around to my birthday and around to Christmas and people in my family say, what do you want? I'm like, not really anything. I don't want more things. I have too many things, you know? I mean, there's one of my flaws, but I don't need things for validation. It's it's amazing. And, And I don't think it's just getting older. I think it's, it's the work that I've done in this program to accept myself, to, to not need to have things to prove that I'm okay. The next guidepost is having a resilient spirit, which is letting go of numbing and powerlessness. Do you, as I do sometimes, when things just get to be too much, do you just shut down? I did that recently. My my life was, was overloaded and overwhelming, particularly with pressure at work, but but other things as well, and, and I just shut down. I would go to work, I would do my work, I would come home and I would veg. I would sit on the couch and, and watch something on Netflix, or I would play a video game, or maybe I would read. And the the crazy thing here, using that word figuratively, is that I could do this until late into the night and thus not getting enough sleep, which probably helped me to repeat the pattern the next day. I would just go numb. And powerlessness is is not so much of an issue for me most of the time. I mean, there are things that I'm powerless over that I can, I can shut down 
and and not uh, keep my spirit open, keep my spirit awake, keep my spirit alive. But one of the things that Al-Anon has done for me is to give me an understanding of, of what powerless means. If I'm powerless over something, that means that I don't have to put energy into it and I can put energy into something else. And, and that helps me to be more resilient. Well, I can't do that, but what can I do is a question I can ask here. It's a question you can ask. If you can't do A, can you do B? If you can't keep it from raining, can you put up an umbrella or get a raincoat or get under shelter rather than standing in the middle of the rain saying, I wish it would stop raining. And that seems so obvious when I say it that way, but there were definitely times in my life when I was standing in the middle of of the rain saying, I want it to stop raining. How can I make it stop raining? Figuratively. And when I have that overwhelming sense of powerlessness because I'm trying to do something that can't be done, um, that that kills my spirit. It does. Uh, the next one's a great one and something that we often talk about in the rooms, gratitude and joy. And this she defines as letting go of scarcity and fear of the dark. How do we find gratitude? How do we have that attitude of gratitude? We start by finding the things in our lives that are enough. We find the things in our lives that are good. And there are always things in our lives that are good, no matter how bad our life may seem at the moment. And joy is, is something that's a little harder um, we've talked about uh, joy and laughter in this program, uh, in in this podcast. In previous episode 121 about laughter touches a lot on that. Well, finding finding humor, finding laughter, and, and laughter leading to joy. So gratitude and joy, letting go of scarcity and fear of the dark. Fear of the dark, man. That is the the two in the morning hamster wheel in my head running everything's going to be horrible feeling. Everything's going to hell and I can't change it because I'm lying here in the dark. And and I don't mean the darkness of my bedroom. I mean the darkness of my soul and the fear that it's never going to get better. The fear that it's always going to be dark can be overwhelming. And by cultivating gratitude, by cultivating enoughness, um, I can I can start to push away that dark and I can I can start to lie not in the cold scary dark but in the warm enveloping comforting dark. I don't know if you've had the experience of being outside on a warm summer night maybe it's about 80 degrees that would be let me think about this maybe about 25 for those of you who don't use our old fashioned uh, US temperature scale sitting outside in that warmth that is so comforting it's so soft it's it's a it's a wonderful feeling for me it can be of this warm comforting enveloping soft darkness um, and uh, you know cultivating gratitude can help move me from the scary cold dark to the warm comforting dark and then i'm not afraid of it anymore Another guidepost is creativity. This is letting go of comparison. I don't know about you, but I have been paralyzed in, somebody says, draw how you feel, or 
draw something. We had a, a, a an exercise at work where every few weeks we reflect on on how we're doing, uh, what's going well, what we'd like to change, what maybe we want to stop doing as a group, so that we can work more effectively. And in one of those meetings, our leader asked us to make a postcard of the last couple of weeks. Okay, that paralyzes me. What do you mean make a po- I have to draw a picture and write a message and then everybody's going to see it? I can't draw. I can't. I can draw stick figures sometimes, maybe. I, I, what? I, ah, okay. And, and that's, you know, letting go of that fear of comparison. Somebody else is going to make this postcard that is just freaking amazing with like realistic drawing and shading and colors. And, and mine, I'm going to have these black and white stick figures doing something stupid. If I can let go of that comparison and let my creativity go. Yeah. I made a postcard and yeah, it was stick figures and yeah, people liked it because it wasn't it wasn't how well i did the drawing it was what i expressed with the drawing and the words let go of that fear of comparison let go of that comparing with somebody else and do what you like to do i like to cook and i feel pretty good about my cooking but when i offer it to somebody who hasn't had it before i still feel like well how's this going to measure up to you know what their mother made or what they had in a restaurant last week and, you know, that doesn't happen very deeply. It doesn't happen very strongly, but it can be there. But I like to create. I like to make new things. And there are areas where I feel I'm good at it. And there's areas where I feel like in comparison to others, I'm, I'm not. And, and that fear of comparison, that feeling that I am not as good as stops me from, from doing something I might enjoy. You know, I talked a few weeks ago in in the father's episode about taking photographs and getting a camera when I was six and just taking pictures, and most of them probably were drag. But in the process, I made some that I liked, and and I could I could then say, well, what did I do to make that picture, and what can I do to make more pictures like that? When creating, I learn by failing, and if I am blocked from failing. I fear that I am not as good as somebody else, I'm never going to learn. I'm never going to get better. And I'm going to have this creative urge bottled up inside me. And I, and I need to, I need to express that in order to live fully. So let go of comparison and maybe I create something and throw it away. And maybe that's okay, but I have to throw it away because I want to throw it away. Not because I'm afraid of throwing, showing it to somebody else. I mean, this happens at work. Okay, I'm writing computer programs. That's actually a creative activity, believe it or not. Uh, And one of our disciplines is that somebody else reads what you've written to critique, to say, looks good, to say, well, you could do this better, or hey, I think there's a bug here. Um, This is a very important part of, of how we do our work, that we don't work in isolation. We work as a team, and that two eyes... Two sets of eyes see much better than twice one set of eyes. But that first moment of, okay, I'm going to show this to you, this thing I created, and you're going to hate it. You're going to say it's horrible. That that moment of fear is there, and I have to let go of that moment of fear to do my job. 
to let go of comparing my code to somebody else's code and say, this is my code. This is what it is. And it does the job. And I made it. And I can be proud of it. Because I often am. But there's still that fear of showing it to somebody else. Another guidepost to living wholeheartedly is play and rest. And I think I really talked about this recently in a couple of the episodes, talked about laughter, but also talking at the beginning of, of an episode of, uh, a couple of months ago about about stress and about recognizing the need to rest. And then over the last couple of months, talking about how I've tried to move forward on that recognition and taking Fridays off when I can. Uh, and making that day not a day of chores, not a day of with a list of things I have to do, but a day in which I can do what I want. I can rest, I can play. And how that really has improved my outlook, improved my mental health, and reduced the stress that I have felt. It's really important. What is, what is, what is letting, what do I let go of to get play and rest? It's letting go of, and I love this, letting go of the feeling that exhaustion leads to status. Oh, I worked so hard. I'm so tired and I'm such an amazing person because I did it. Okay. Do you feel that way? Because I feel that's a message that is so strong in our culture. If you're not working to exhaustion, you're not working well enough and you're not a good worker. You don't have status. You get status by working yourself to the bone. You get status by working 80 hour, 100 hour weeks. That's how you get status. And, and this message is, is just endemic, I think, in our society. And I need to let go of that message. I need to recognize that more work does not equal more status. More work does not equal a better me. And the other thing that I, that, that I'm letting go of in order to put play and rest into my life is the notion that productivity is the basis of my self-worth. I don't know if you've heard this expression. I first heard it from a counselor at a recovery center who was talking to my loved one saying, you need to become a human being. Right now you're a human doing. You're finding your worth in your work. Think about that question that when you meet a new person, you probably ask them, I know I do. Well, what do you do? What do you do? Because obviously, we're defined by our work. Is that true? Is that true for you? Do you feel that without your work, you're nothing? Do you feel that without your work, you're, you're pointless? That you're a non-person? That you're worthless? How do you find self-worth in being? How do I find self-worth in being? Again, um, the things that I have learned in this program, the support of a loving higher power, and the growing ability to love myself help me to find worth in who I am and not in what I do. What would it be like if, when you first met somebody, instead of saying, oh, and what do you do? You said, what is it that makes you feel most alive? What is it you feel is the, at the core of your being? Could you ask that question of somebody you just met? And how would that change the conversation that you're about to have? 
Think about that. I'm going to think about that. Ah, it takes a lot of courage to ask that question. Hmm. Courage, compassion, connection. What makes you feel most alive? What do you love to do? Do you think those questions would create connection? The, that answering those questions would create connection? That hearing the answers to those questions would help you find compassion and love for that other person? What do you think? Hmm. Okay, here's another biggie. Calm and stillness. The Al-Anon opening speaks of serenity. That serenity that we can find through this program. The gift of serenity. And I didn't understand what serenity was until I felt it one day. And, and I'd been in the program for a while at that point, and I think not quite a year, and my loved one had relapsed recently, and I was at a meeting, I was talking to somebody after a meeting, and I said, you know what? I have not felt fearful or angry or despairing or frustrated or hopeless all day. Is that what serenity is? And I came to recognize that serenity is not the absence of storms in my life. Serenity is being calm, being able to be calm in the middle of those storms. You know, my life was still crazy, but I wasn't. I wasn't acting out of fear and despair and hopelessness. I was starting to find a center in myself. I was starting to find a place to stand so that I could let those winds blow around me and not be buffeted here and there by them. That was serenity. And stillness. Stillness is hard for me. I hear a lot of people say stillness is hard. I can't meditate because I can't sit still for five minutes. I can't sit still for 10 or 20 minutes. I can't keep my mind still. Wow, what is that? Keep my mind still. Think about a pool, a pond, a cup of coffee. Think about think about that cup of coffee. Think about holding onto that cup of coffee and willing it to be still, willing it to have no little ripples in it. Can you do that while you're holding onto it as tight as you can, trying to make it be still? I can't because my body moves. I can't hold my hand perfectly still. And and when my body moves, that makes ripples in the cup of coffee. I cannot make it be still by holding on to it. I cannot make my mind be still by focusing on being still. That's the hard part of traditional meditation, is letting go. It's all about letting go. Okay. I can find stillness with my mind still jumping around if I don't focus on it. And that's a crazy kind of a thing. Um, when we have in church in the morning, and we have always a time of silence and meditation and prayer. And often our minister reminds us that silence in this 
context does not mean the absence of all sound. What it means is the absence of deliberate adult speaking. And so, people may be wrestling, coughing. Babies may be making their little baby noises. Those are all part of the silence. And when I am really there and calm and still, those just wash over me as part of what's going on. As if I'm sitting outside and the birds are singing and the locusts are buzzing and the frogs are are doing whatever frogs do. Burping, ribbiting, whatever. You know, those are all part of part of the stillness, part of the stillness of the environment. You know, it's not, I'm not in an isolation chamber with absolutely no sound, no feeling, no sight, but I can be calm and still. And it's the same thing with, with my mind when it can be jumping around, but I don't have to follow it. It just seems weird, but give it a try. Calm and stillness, the letting go. What is the letting go here? I forgot about the letting go part. Letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle. Oh, man, anxiety as a lifestyle. I had that. I had that in spades. I was anxious, anxious all the time. Anxious about my loved ones drinking. Anxious about my performance at work. Anxious about the thing I said yesterday to somebody that I'm sure just totally offended them. Anxious about everything. Letting go of anxiety. Wow. Can I do that? Can you do that? Hmm. Oh, the next one, the next one. Meaningful work. Meaningful work. This is letting go of self-doubt and letting go of supposed to. You know, there are so many things in life that we're supposed to do. These are expectations that we put on ourselves or that other people, that we allow other people to put on us about how we're supposed to act, about how we're, you know, we're supposed to have a good job. We're supposed to have, you know, a house in the suburbs with a white picket fence and two and a half children. I mean, that's not so true anymore, but that's how I grew up. You know, everybody was supposed to have, live in the suburbs, have a house, have a couple of children, a dog, uh, two cars. You know, I was supposed to. Expectations that we accept and that we then try to meet up to. And in order to get there, we do whatever it takes. And what that is that we do may or may not give any meaning to our life. And I feel extremely grateful that most of the work that I have been paid to do in my life is also work that in one way or another gives me meaning, gives meaning to who I am. Not completely, because I know that... uh, a decade and a half ago when I walked back into church after almost 30 years gone, I found a whole bunch of soul meaning there that I didn't know I had been missing until I, until I found it again. But I haven't had to work in a soul-sucking job. And, and that's, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. But I also have found meaningful work in other places. And one of the places, in fact, that I find meaningful work is in doing this podcast. And I don't get paid for doing this podcast. I am grateful, immensely grateful to those of you who send a, send a few bucks every now and then uh, to help defray the expenses uh, of putting out this podcast. But I put out this podcast because it is meaningful. It is work that I can do that has meaning. 
um, in a sense, other than contributing to the financial well-being of myself and the financial well-being of the company that I work for. Meaningful work, letting go of self-doubt. Am I good enough? Am I good enough to do this thing? Well, ha, huh. so last night when the, uh, when the person at the table said, I feel like I can't open my mouth in a meeting because I have to be perfect in what I say, the, the first thought that came into my head was, hey, try doing a podcast. Try sitting down in front of a microphone once a week and, and trying to say something meaningful that, that will, um, you know, speak to other people. Yeah. That's a, it's a humbling experience. And, and every time I do this and every time I think, oh, well, blew that one. And then one of you writes back to me and says, that helped me so much. I really loved it. I know that I'm doing something meaningful and it, and it gives me courage and strength and energy to keep on going. And I have to let go of that self-doubt. I have to put it out there. I have to put my voice out there for all of you to hear, for you to hear today, right now. Huh. What is meaningful to you? Can you find meaningful work in your life? Maybe it's the work you're being paid to do. Maybe it's not. But finding something meaningful helps to, to fill my soul, helps me to feel enough. And the last guidepost that she identifies is laughter, song, and dance. And what is the letting go here? The letting go, letting go of being cool and letting go of being in control. And I, again, I was reflecting on this recently. I went to a wedding and they had a DJ and dancing after, after the wedding. And I always feel like I can't dance real well. I'm a little bit clumsy. I'm a little bit awkward. I can't quite keep the rhythm. I could never be a drummer. Oh, my God. And if I put myself in that place of I have to be cool and I have to be in control, then I'm not going to dance. And the thing is, the music plays and that beat just comes into me and I and I need to move and maybe I can just you know I just sit there and kind of tap my foot and move back and forth a little bit you can't see me I'm just kind of moving my head to the beat you know and but if I get out there and I really let go and I don't care what the people around me think whether they're looking at me and saying oh, that guy can't dance look at him just like shaking himself wildly. If I can let go of that, I have so much fun. And I would, I, I come off the dance floor just exhausted and joyful because the music moving through me just stirs up my soul in a, in a positive way. And, and it's a, and it's a, it's a release of energy in more ways than one, because I do come down, I do come off exhausted and sweating sometimes, but it's such a good thing for me. It's so much fun. And so I was at this wedding and, you know, I'm 60 years old and, and we got the, the 20 somethings out there dancing and the 30 and the 40 somethings out there dancing and, and I'm out there dancing and maybe I look like a fool, but I'm having fun. Singing. Oh, I like to sing. But I always felt I couldn't sing in key. 
I would be just a little off one way or another. And, and unfortunately, I can hear that. And so I would, I would feel that self-judgment. And if I was standing next to somebody else, I would know they were judging me. And I'd just sing under my breath so they couldn't hear that I was off key. And so I went back to church. And we sang hymns, obviously. And, and I started singing along. And, and lo and behold, as, as I started to sing and as I started to, to do it more, I found, well, one of the things that I found was that like all of my life, I had been trying to sing like Paul McCartney. And that is not my vocal range. Okay. My vocal range is somewhat lower. And when I, stopped trying to sing like Paul McCartney and started to sing like me, I got a lot better. And, and singing those hymns in church every, every week, you know, one, two, three, four, maybe five sometime. I got better and I got more confident, but I couldn't get there without going through that place of being not in control of my voice, my voice, not doing what I wanted it to do. And the first time the person next to me said, Oh, I really loved hearing your you sing that hymn. I was like, me? Whoa, I'm getting better. Um, but I couldn't get there without letting go of the control and just doing it. And by doing it, I got better. You know, maybe that's not your skill, but even if it's not, sing along with the radio in the car. Oh my God, who's going to hear you? Does it matter if you're on key or off key as long as you're enjoying it? As long as you're Letting that that song bring joy into your life, do it. Don't worry about being cool and in control. Just do it. Oh, my God. And, of course, last week we talked all about laughter, so I don't think I have more to say there. So a lot of letting go here, a lot of letting go of who I think people think I need to be letting go of how I think other people think I need to act and being who I am and doing what I can. And my life's better when I can be that way. And so much of how, the how of that, I have learned in the rooms and in working the 12 steps. It's a gift. When I close with a reading from near the end of, of the book. The truth is that meaningful change is a process. It can be uncomfortable and is often risky, especially when we're talking about embracing our imperfections, cultivating authenticity, and looking the world in the eye and saying, I am enough. However afraid we are of change, the question that we must ultimately answer is this. What's the greater risk? Letting go of what people think or letting go of how I feel, what I believe, and who I am. Wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It's about cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. It's about going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I am also brave and worthy of love and belonging. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where I talk about how recovery works in my daily life and my meetings. My first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 122, 
is by Pink. The song is called Perfect, or um, a slightly more profane version of that. Um, there are both of them out there, effing perfect. And this is the first song that I thought of to go with this episode on imperfection, because it's a perfect song now. <laughs> because the song is about feeling imperfect and knowing that despite how you feel, you are okay. And and she expresses it pretty, pretty please. Don't you ever, ever feel like you're less than, less than perfect. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives and recovery, what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. And that would be my meeting in my life, I guess. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, I had uh, had a vacation in there and a lot of work when I got back from vacation. Uh, a lot of long days and an extra day on the weekend this week, going for a deadline. And actually made the conscious decision, and this is what's the important part, I made the conscious decision to not take my vacation day on Friday because the team together is working for a deadline and there's a significant reward at that deadline if we all make it together. And, you know, I want that reward as much as I think everybody else does. I'm part of the team and I made the conscious decision to contribute to the team on Friday um, because it was a piece of the work that I was doing that was not done. And I will take that vacation day when we're not right up against the deadline, which is actually today, Monday, as I'm recording this in the morning before going to work. But it was important to make that decision deliberately and consciously, not just by default say, oh, well, okay, I guess I'm coming in tomorrow to say, no, this is, this is an important thing and it's an important thing for me. And it's important thing for me as part of the team to be there. And so I was there. I did remind everybody that I was not taking my vacation day, of course. Ha ha. All right. Um, so yeah, a lot of work and vacation, vacation with my family, uh, vacation with my aging parents. And, and I've talked about my fears uh, over my parents' health recently. And this visit, again, attitude is important to me here. Understanding that they're not the people they were. They're not the people that, in a, in a sense that I want them to be, in the sense of being able and healthy as maybe they were when they were 60, not what they are now that they're on, uh, on both on either side of 85, but accepting them for who they are and enjoying the time that we have together because who knows how long that's going to be. And, you know, we had a, we had a quiet visit. Uh, we, we did some things. We, uh, we helped my father uh, turn on the water at the cottage by the lake, which they're trying to sell. And it's nice to have running water in the in the cottage when you're trying to sell it. So people are like, oh, yeah, it's got water. Cool. Um, also, my brother was sleeping there. So it was good for him to not have to drink water out of plastic jugs and so on. Uh, we uh, we went to a play. That was a lot of fun as a family, you know, all together. Um, and uh, just had a, had a low-key visit. And that's what it needs to be these days. Used to be we were always going somewhere, doing something, and and that's not where where they are now. Um, they they might still express the desire, but I know that you know piling everybody in the car and driving for an hour to maybe go to the art museum, and you know with my mother 
hobbling very slowly with her walker or maybe in a wheelchair. Um, you know, there's some, there would be some enjoyment to that, but there would be a lot of, a lot of effort and everybody would be exhausted at the end of the day. And if we can instead sit and enjoy the view and, and the warm weather and each other's company, you know, it's equally good. It really is. So where we are as a family together with my parents these days is not going and doing, but being. We're human beings, not necessarily human doings. Yeah. Uh, I did not make it to a meeting during that visit. I normally find a meeting. Uh, there's a Friday noon meeting that I almost always go to when I'm visiting them. And that didn't happen this week because my brother was visiting from California. He was going to his high school reunion, 40th. Hard to believe my little brother's going to his 40th high school reunion, but then I just turned 60, so I guess that makes sense. Anyway, he was going to his reunion, and, and the last time we were going to have with him on that visit was Friday at lunch. And so we stayed for lunch instead of going to the meeting. And, and again, that was a conscious decision and it was the right decision um, to spend time with my family and then get home and go to a meeting. <laughs> yeah. Let me think about, uh, I don't know. I think that's, I think that's what I've got here um, in my life. Uh, meetings have been good. I had two first step meetings in a row uh, after I got back from visiting the family, I think that's what I needed because I'm definitely feeling powerless over my parents' health and over how well and how much longer they're going to, to live. Oh, yeah. So one of the things on that visit was that they are starting to, um, the word somebody used in a meeting last night, declutter their lives a little bit. They're starting to look at all the stuff that they brought with them from the previous house where they got rid of a lot of stuff when they moved out of the previous house and thinking about, you know, what it's time to, to, to get rid of now. Um, I actually, my sister said there was some talk about getting a dumpster, uh, to, uh, to clear stuff out of the basement. I think there's years and years of, of records and stuff that, you know, they don't need anymore. And I really think that within the next few years, it's going to see them moving into, uh, some sort of a senior housing, uh, with, assisted living option as my mother's continues to need assistance and probably will need more assistance. And you know, it hurts and it hurts me emotionally to see this happening, but I'm also grateful that maybe they're going to do it and it's not going to be our responsibility after they die. Um, which is sort of a harsh way of putting it, but it also took me back to a, a workshop that I did, um, with, uh, some of the youth at my church. Uh, somebody came in from, a local hospice to talk about what it is to die, what it's like to die a peaceful death. And they walked us through this process where they talked about how our body is changing, how we're losing f faculties and so on. But they, at the beginning they had us pick, I forget two or four people that were important to us, things that were important to us, things that we do that are important to us. And at each stage of the dying process, we had to give up some of these things. And that turned to a very emotional, to be very emotional for me, like actually letting go of people, actually letting go um, of, of, of things and, and things that I can do that are, you know, important to me. And, but I see that, 
And I see that here with them is as a longer process. They are letting go. They are recognizing that there are things that were important in their life that are not important now and that letting go of them lightens their load and makes it easier for them to live their life now. So sad, but also (sighs) real, I guess. I don't know. Looking forward in the podcast, um, I want to thank everybody who has sent an email or a voicemail or has uh, offered to talk to me about Al-Anon Dreams because I think I'm getting ready to put that episode together. Maybe we have enough. Uh, But if you have a dream that you feel is an Al-Anon dream, whether it's about recovery or relapse or loss of control, lack of control, let me know. Call, leave a voicemail, send an email. Let me know you want to talk about it, and we can set up a time to to converse on the phone and, about it. We let's 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 get our dreams together and make an episode out of it. I'll be talking to Akila shortly, I'm sure, about um, a couple more concepts. I think we're up to eight, and I haven't looked to see what those are yet, uh, but uh, we'll get there. And. As you'll hear in the uh, the email section of the podcast, I think there's a couple of topic suggestions in there as well that I might be asking for contributions on. You can join the conversation. We welcome your thoughts. Please leave us a voicemail or send an email with your feedback and questions. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. If you're inspired, you can do that right now. You can just hit pause and call and then Hit play and I'll be right back, 734-707-8795, or use the voicemail button on the website to contribute your voice directly from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of imperfection or any of our upcoming topics. You can find all the information about the Recovery Show at our website, which is therecoveryshow.com. Recommend therecoveryshow.com to your friends if you're recommending the podcast. And you can also leave comments there. You can find previous episodes. We have notes about each episode and links to typically music videos of the music that we talk about in the episode. So check us out at therecoveryshow.com. Enter the conversation there. If you really like to join the conversation, you can be a guest host by phone or Skype or Google Hangout or FaceTime or dot, dot, dot. Email feedback at com. There's that email again if you're interested. I'm going to take a short break before looking at the mailbag. The second musical selection also available on the website is Endless by Amanda Falk. And this is about finding, this is about the quest for perfection the quest for external validation and the quest for self-worth, maybe self-love. Some lyrics, see her eyes fall as she looks in the mirror, never satisfied with what she sees there. Will she ever look past her own perceptions? It's an endless, constant quest. Where is happiness in all of this?
All right, got some email this week, last couple of weeks. Um, Akila wrote, she says, over on the Recovery Radio Network, which we do have a link to on the website, there's a speaker who covers the concepts of service and what they mean and how to apply them to Al-Anon in our daily lives. I believe the speaker is the director of the WSO, which is the the world uh, Al-Anon organization, world service organization. But I may be misremembering the exact title. I found it really helpful. Here are links to the feeds, or you can access them through the podcast, the Recovery Radio Network. I will put links to those three talks um, in the show notes for this episode at therecoveryshow.com slash 122. She continues, the first 15 minutes or so of part one has some housekeeping stuff in it, just in case you're wondering when he's going to start already. So if you want to skip that, I I guess you can... uh, just jump to about minute 15 to get into the beginning of the, his discussion of the concepts. Another email, dear Spencer and all your wonderful co-hosts. And personally speaking of Spencer here, not as the emailer, um, I want to say thank you to all of you who have been co-hosts because uh, it really adds so much. Uh, I believe it adds so much to the podcast to have more than one voice in, in it. And it also helps my voice. Anyway, uh, She continues, I'm writing to tell you how valuable your program is to me. Even though I've been attending Al-Anon for two years now, I still feel like I'm just beginning to understand and appreciate this recovery journey. I love listening to your podcast and appreciate all the honesty, insight, and care you put into each show. When I get a little further into my recovery work, I would love to help you out if you need some help co-hosting. Parentheses, I think I need a little maturing to take place in my experience, strength, and hope department. Again, thanks for all you do. Your program is a vital part of my recovery, so thankful for you and your team. Brenda. Thanks, Brenda. And I don't know, as as uh, as I was thinking last night uh, when a person shared about being reluctant to open their mouth because they wouldn't say it perfectly, um, just open it up and start talking. And what will come out will be the right thing. Email from Jen. Hi, Spencer. I've been listening for about six months now. Thank you so much for this resource that is available anytime. Because of your podcast, I decided to try an Al-Anon meeting when my church's 12-step program fell apart. Every week I go to my meeting, I worry that I'll be found out. It isn't that I'm codependent. I'm willing to share that. It isn't that this stuff doesn't seem to stick in my head, so I'll need the program forever. Ever. It isn't that my memory is horrible, and even though I've been working the steps for over two years, I can't recite them. The secret is, I'm afraid my Al-Anon friends will find out that I've never lived with an alcoholic. My therapist recommended that I try Al-Anon and or adult children because I deal with the same issues as those who grew up in alcoholic homes and marriages, even though my parents and ex-spouse never touched alcohol. I guess you could say they are lifelong dry drunks. Or I guess they are mentally ill, narcissists, abusers. Whatever they are, I don't really need to diagnose. What I need is Al-Anon to remind me not to be a victim and to teach me how to live. I don't know if this is a request for a show on this topic or simply a request to mention this idea, that even those who haven't carried a recycling container full of clanking cans and bottles to the curb can be helped greatly by Al-Anon. Maybe someone else out there needs to know it's okay to need Al-Anon, whatever the reason. Maybe I want to hear someone say that I'm welcome and that this is one more secret I don't have to keep. Thank you, Jen. And I'll I'll just say this, Jen, uh, and this is what I say to people uh, it, who are new in the program, who asked this question, like, I don't know if I belong here. My answer is, if you feel like you belong, if you identify with what's being said, then keep on coming. 
Even if you don't feel like you belong, if you identify with what's being said, keep on coming. Because alcoholism doesn't just affect us directly. Alcoholism can affect us indirectly through somebody who's been affected by somebody else's alcoholism. And and you talk about your parents never touching alcohol and maybe being dry drunks. You know, maybe they've got alcoholism in, in their past, um, a parent or a sibling that affected the way that they think. And that has been passed on to you. Uh, I have lots of friends in, in the program who have identified that, you know, their parent was a child of an alcoholic and that they learned how to be, how to act in that way from that parent. And that brings them to the program. Even if you don't see it in your life, even if you can't identify it, if you feel connected, if you feel like what we're saying, have you ever had that feeling like, who are you and what are you doing in my life? What are you doing talking about my life? Uh, Have you been living inside my head? I've had that feeling in meetings. If you ever have that feeling, you belong. And we don't ask you. Uh, you know, the reading on the third step in the book, How Al and I Works, is something like uh, that you are the only judge of whether you belong in the program. Nobody else can tell you yes or no. So keep on coming. I got an email asking about intervention, and I don't have personal experience with intervention. So I'm putting the question out to you. Have you staged an intervention for a loved one? How did you set it up? How did it go and what happened? Let us know. Let me know, because if I get a few responses, I can put them together into an episode and that will help other people who are thinking about worrying about their loved one and maybe thinking about whether they should try to stage an intervention. Here's the email. Do you know anything about interventions? I have a son who is in deeply and badly, weed and booze, has expressed suicidal thoughts and is driving us all crazy, and I'm afraid for his fate. I'm not quite as bad as the others because I have the program, but I am afraid for him. He's about 25, in denial, and knows it all, and has managed to squirm past really bad ramifications so far. I guess, I'd have to guess he's an unlikely candidate, but I feel you know more than I do, so I thought I'd ask. Thanks. I don't know more than you do, but maybe you know more than either of us does because you've had that experience, and maybe it worked well for you, and maybe it didn't, and... I would like to hear those stories. And I think my correspondent would like to hear those stories so that he can make a decision about whether he wants to try to do this for his son. So give me a call, send me an email, call me, we can have a conversation. Um, I really would love to hear your experience on this topic. And, and so would so would my correspondent. Bonnie posted a comment on the laughter episode on the website. I listen to the podcast often, several times a week, most weeks. I enjoyed the podcast on laughter. Laughter is good, like medicine. Life before recovery made it hard to laugh when I so often found myself feeling sorry for myself. I have learned through the program that I can choose joy for my life regardless of whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. I've grown so much through the program and love life. I would love to share my story and be a part of the podcast at some future point. God bless all that you do to help all of us, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie. And I'll just reflect back to the the point earlier about meaningful work and about how this podcast is meaningful work. And I know it is because you tell me it is. Thank you. 
Eric also posted a comment on the laughter episode. He says, I forgot to mention in our podcast on laughter, one of my favorite items in what some call the Al-Anon promises. From page 269, I believe it's in the book from Survival to Recovery. We will laugh more. What follows is also for me, always worth another read and a share here if you like. Fear will be replaced by faith, and gratitude will come naturally as we realize that our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Can we really grow to such proportions? Only if we accept life as a continuing process of maturation and evolution toward wholeness. Then we suddenly begin to notice these gifts appearing. We see them in those who walk beside us. Sometimes slowly or haltingly, occasionally in great bursts of brilliance, Those who work the steps change and grow toward light, toward health, and toward their higher power. Watching others, we realize this is also possible for us. Will we ever arrive, feel joyful all the time, have no cruelty, tragedy, or injustice to face? Probably not. But we will acquire growing acceptance of our human fallibility, as well as greater love and tolerance for each other. Self-pity, resentment, martyrdom, rage, and depression will fade into memory. Community, Rather than loneliness will define our lives, we will know that we belong, we are welcome, we have something to continue, and that is enough. Good stuff, that laughter. Worth the effort to get it back. Thanks again, Eric. And, uh, and thanks for that, uh, that reminder, Eric. I've heard those before. I've heard that, that, for, that section before, but it's, it is good. It is good to, be, to hear it again. And, uh, and in that last sentence... Community rather than loneliest will define our lives. We will know that we belong. We are welcome. We have something to contribute, and that is enough. And I think it echoes back to this: the gifts of imperfection, particularly of compassion and connection. But you know, the courage to be there to walk that journey uh, is also part of it. Thanks. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to the recovery show, but we do have expenses that run about sixty dollars a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Anthony, Eric, and Karen did. And thank you again, Anthony, Eric, and Karen, for your contributions. We've put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link on the webpage. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, monetarily, telling your friends about us, or just listening. We are here for you. The last song selection is Imperfection by Saving Jane. And again, you can listen to that at therecoveryshow.com slash 122. I mean, aside from the title to the song, I, I just started listening, I, I, and I read the lyrics, and I'm like, oh, I have to have to include this. Because it's about being imperfect and being okay with it. Here's a bunch of lyrics. My hair's a wreck, mascara runs, my feet get dirty, and my skin burns in the sun. My lips, they bleed, but I still sing my songs. Takes me a minute to admit it when I'm wrong. Pretty is, as pretty does, but pretty's not my thing. This is what you get. This is who I am. Take me now or leave me any way you can. Sometimes I trip and fall, but I know where I stand. And if you're thinking about changing my direction, don't mess with imperfection. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. 
May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.